And we're live, ladies and gentlemen, what is up? Great to be here with you all. Forever's joining us for the first time. Um, this is the great debate. Uh, if you guys are wondering what makes this debate great, it's that unlike most other debates, it's not two people working to defeat one another. It's two people working together to find common ground on a wide array of issues. If you came here looking for a fight, you probably won't find people fighting, but you will find people working together to fight against bad ideas. That's what we're here to do. Topic of today, Israel and Palestine. Hot topic. Um, as you know, as an Israeli, this is close to heart, close to home. This is the main topic of discussion on the great debate, but we have decided to begin to expand to many other topics of discussion. So uh feel free to reach out to me let me know in the comments uh you know what what other topics you'd like to discuss and we'll try to we'll try to get a proper discussion going on that topic um if this is your first time here uh, and you like this content please subscribe we're doing two debates a week in addition to that we upload much other content i am very happy to announce my two guests it's their first time ever on the great israel palestine debate on my bottom left, Antoine Saka, born in Jerusalem to a Christian family from the city of Bethlehem. He has been working toward the dream of peace and justice in the Holy Land throughout his entire adult life. He pre previously worked as a program coordinator at the Holy Land Christian Educational Foundation and as a research assistant in the area of urbanization and geopolitical monitoring at Applied Research Institute in Jerusalem. In the past years, he served as a youth, youth leader and was a member of the One Voice Movement. Antoine graduated from the Arab American University of Janine with a bachelor's degree in public law. And to my bottom right, Rabbi Yehuda HaKohen is a West Bank Jewish educator and organizer. As a leader in the Vision Movement, he works to empower students to become active participants in the current chapter of Jewish history. As a founder of the Alternative Action he organizes grassroots dialogue sessions for Palestinians and Israelis seeking to transcend competing one-sided narratives in favor of a more scientific analysis of the factors forcing both peoples into conflict. It is such a pleasure to have you both here. Um, and you, you know, your, your, your description includes work you do with narratives and competing narratives. So I know you have a very interesting perspective regarding narrative. So I'd like to start with you um, sharing that perspective with, with me in the audience, please. Well, the, the way I would define a narrative is a collection of facts that are selectively chosen and contextualized within an ideological worldview. So just because we're speaking about the last hundred years of history between Jews and Palestinians in this land, um, in the last hundred years, we probably have millions of facts, but each side tends to choose the, the facts that support their narrative. Meaning, and we both tend to ignore facts. And the way we organize facts tell a specific story. So I think that uh, what we have, um, you know, in this conflict specifically is a situation where both Jews and Palestinians, and I'm going to speak broadly here because I think there are actually multiple narratives on both sides, but Jews and Palestinians are for the most part 
telling the truth when we speak about ourselves, when we speak about our experiences, when we speak about our collective stories. Uh, but both of us seem to be very uh, ignorant uh, and often insensitive when we speak about the other story. And from my perspective, the only way forward really is if we're willing to engage the story of the other, engage the narrative of the other without fear, it, with the intention, with the aspiration to create a bigger narrative that's inclusive enough to encompass both ostensibly rival narratives so that we can actually become co-protagonists together in the same story rather than be the antagonist in each other's stories. So wh what I see happening right now is the Jews or the Zionists or the Israelis play a very specific role in the Palestinian story and that is a very negative role and uh, that is the role of the antagonist. And the Palestinians play a very negative role in the Jewish story, and that is the role of antagonist. But the, the role I play as an antagonist in the Palestinian story is very different from how I experience myself. Because we both have this habit of superimposing identities, ideologies, and motivations on the other that have very little to do with how the other is experiencing themselves. And even if the goal is not to reconcile and make peace and establish justice in this land, even if the goal was just to win, even if I decided I want to destroy the Palestinians, I still have an interest in understanding his story as he understands it, because otherwise that will lead me to counterproductive methods of struggle. And I think that's a lot of what we see today. We see both Israelis and Palestinians who want to win in, at the other's expense, engaging in very counterproductive methods of struggle due to a refusal to even understand the other as the other understands himself. And so I think that the, the only way forward really is to really create the space for both sides to be able to engage the stories of the other, the identities of the other, the narratives of the other without fear. I think right now both sides are largely afraid of the other's story and the other's identity because we feel it somehow undermines our own. Uh, so we need to engage the, the identities, narratives, and stories of the other uh, in order to change the role we each play in each other's stories, to stop being the antagonist in one, one another's stories, and create a bigger story in which we're actually both the co-protagonists together. Which is, of course, inclusive of all the facts that we bring and all the facts that Palestinians bring that tell our own stories. Thank you for that. A Antoine, is there anything you'd like to add to that? We're not, we're not hearing you. Antoine, complete silence. Um, now, do you hear me now? Yeah, there we go. Hear you loud and clear. So what I said is we've observed in throughout many is how narratives have played uh, a role in this way perceived conflict and there has been always a competition of which narrative is the justful or rightful one or not. Eventually leading to an understanding, at least on behalf of my experience in a way, that narratives or master narratives as we know them have consisted uh, somehow of an inhibitor of moving forward. So yes, narratives are very important to begin to understand the identity of the other, uh, to understand even the um, ambitions of the other side. Yet, I wouldn't say just narratives are the only stumbling point, and narratives definitely hold a lot of locks and a lot of keys for 
the deadlocks that we have uh, faced in the last 25 years. Uh, therefore, definitely uh, it's something worthy to invest in, but not to rely completely on. Great. Um, so a, a common theme that I'd like to stick to in these discussions and in general in activism is trying to look at things in terms of what we can do from a policy position and what we can do from an interpersonal position. So, you know, a building a unified narrative from an, you know, from an interpersonal position, it entails having conversations like this, getting to know the other side, truly listening, um, and just engaging in dialogue. Is there something on a policy level that w one of you could think that can be implemented to help build a unified narrative? You mean to change the roles we play in each other's stories? Correct, and, and to begin to have a unified story, yep. Uh, well, I think that right now, part of the problem, and I agree with Antoine, that narratives aren't the only stumbling block. There are many things we have to address, but I think one of the major uh, obstacles to moving forward is the fact that both sides are so afraid of the story of the other and, and so close-minded to the story of the other. Uh, and right now, I think because the power dynamics definitely favor Israel, it's really Israel's responsibility to make the first move towards building trust and changing the role we play. Uh, meaning I don't expect it of Palestinian society at this point because I think Israel uh, has the power and should have the sense of security to be able to, to make the first move. Uh, I think uh, one of the major moves uh, Israel can make, I don't think our government is thinking this way right now, but I think the opportunity certainly presented itself when the Americans started to withdraw funds from the Palestinian Authority. Uh, I would have liked to see the government of Israel uh, start taking responsibility for civil servant salaries in Palestinian society, meaning just start paying Palestinian civil servants, hospital workers, policemen, bus drivers, school teachers in Ramallah, in Bethlehem, in Jericho, in Jenin, um, and uh, Israeli level salaries, not, not the salaries that they're currently getting from the Palestinian Authority, but actually Israeli level salaries. And without any conditions, just send that, send that check every month and let them receive that check alongside uh, the Palestinian Authority checks. I think that would have been a, uh, an introductory step, not even a first step. I would call that the introductory step uh, just to kind of, you know, maybe change the uh, a paradigm a little bit in, in people's heads. And I think that would be an example of us changing our own mentality and, and thinking about our responsibility, not our rights to the land, but our responsibility to the land and to everybody in it. And after that, I think the next step would really be tearing down the wall because I think the wall, uh, is the separation barrier is very much a, a symbol of oppression in the minds of many people. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's just this eyesore that divides our country and I would like to see it taken down. I, in my experience, a lot of Palestinians would like to see it taken down, but I'll let Anton speak for himself. And I think that my, such a symbolic move uh, could uh, be a big step in terms of changing the way that uh, people experience one another here, or at least opening the door to a different kind of conversation or opening people's minds to the fact that maybe, you know, we can have a different kind of relationship. And from there, of course, we'd have to engage in dialogue and talk about where we're going and what we'd like to see here in this country. And it might be a 10-year process, it might be a 20-year process, but it has to be a real process. Not what Oslo was, not this two-state paradigm, but really something 
that involves the, the, those on both sides who are really living the aspirations of their people, those who are willing to fight, kill, and die for their national stories, to be able to come together, which are exactly the Jews and Palestinians who are marginalized from the peace process until now. Uh, those are specifically the, the Jews and Palestinians who need to come together and talk about what our grievances are, what our aspirations are, and how we can create a solution in this country that will actually be considered victory in both narratives. I mean, I think this concept of narrative also brings us to a, a, a way to solve the conflict because ultimately we can't have a situation where either side feels like we've compromised on things that are fundamentally important to us. Ultimately, the only way to, uh, the only real solution that could work here is one in which we, we each experience as winning in our respective stories, in our respective narratives. A uh, quick follow-up. Uh, regarding the wall being taken down, um, I certainly recognize that it's a symbol of oppression as well as an eyesore. Uh, many people who would like the land to remain whole, both Israelis and Palestinians, see a wall as symbolically dividing the land. Do you think that's something that can happen before we have peace? Because I know many Israelis, when they hear take the wall down, they, they instantly, you know, they, they, they think to themselves, well, that would just increase terror. That's why the wall is there. Do you think we can do it before we achieve peace, or would it need to be the end result? I think before. I think it has to be in the beginning of the process. Uh, and I also don't buy the line that the wall has been protecting us or stopping terrorism. I think the wall has been a political tool to condition us to accept the two-state paradigm even after the Oslo Accords failed. Okay, fair. Antoine? Well, going back to the question and how could we influence narratives to be more influential mm -hmm. to moving forward, I think we have to take a step back and uh, look actually innerly each in our own community and understand the narratives that we gather and that we hold. Each of us has a narrative, part of their identity that we know as a master narrative that celebrates many things of our being and existence but denies the existence of the other. If I am to look at my uh, Palestinian liberation uh, narrative, it was complete denial of the other existence. Similarly, in Zionism, Zionism and the policies that has been created throughout the last hundred years has been based on also denying the existence of the people in the land. So that's what I believe the hard work needs to be done, each separately in our own community, uh, coming to points to digging into our existential narrative the narrative that we have been feeding on for the last hundred or two hundred or even hundreds of years and actually ask the questions that we've never asked before and open the spaces for those questions and uh, self-critique is a major part of that that I haven't seen happening on both camps when it comes to narratives. Uh, that's where I believe then we could be coming to a generation or to a place where people can challenge policies and create new policies that do not respond only to the existence uh, of one side only, that does not only deal with the human security of one side only. The moment Zionism, for example, in my view, um, in how it's marketed, you know, a land without a people, a a people without land to a land without a people, it completely denied my existence and my human security. And as long as we cannot come to a point where my uh, partners cannot self-critique that, I think that's where we're wasting time. Similarly on our side as Palestinians, the moment we don't self-critique the narrative that says 
it's only our nationalism and it's only our identity in this land, then that's where we will fail to move forward. Uh, that's when it comes to those narratives and how, in my view, to actually work with them. It's not going to be a meltdown of narratives into one narrative that we will hold together. It will have to be each of us going to our own narrative and checking what's those small stories that are part of this big narrative that actually inhibit us from moving forward. What do we need to challenge on that level? Um, to your question of security, wall, and do we need that pre or after? I don't think right now this Israeli community is willing to buy a narrative that says that the wall is not there for security reasons. This has been the most fed uh, narrative in Israel justifying any practice uh, so far since 1948, which is security, understandably. And uh, that's, I believe, where also that needs to, uh, to have a huge uh, questioning around, because not everything that has happened in the land since 1948 has been actually helping security or calmness in the region. Thank you for that, Antoine. Um, it, it seems like the, the wall conversation has uh, gotten many in the audience heated, which is cool, it's natural, you know, it's a topic that actually affects people. Um, and, and it's clear to see why Israelis and Palestinians would be split on the issue of the wall. But you know, I'm gonna give you um, an opportunity to elaborate a little more, because some people are, are asking, I'm just gonna pull up this one question, this kind of summarizes Thank you for the question, Brooke. Can you elaborate on why you think the barrier has no impact on the security of Israelis? First of all, the barrier is not even finished yet and Palestinians pass through every day. So it's ridiculous to think that the barrier has anything to do with the prevention of terrorism. I would say that if you're talking about the second intifada, you know, I was a soldier at the time and um, you know, the wall, well, maybe I'll start with the political story of the wall. The, the wall was the idea of a member of Knesset named Chaim Ramon, who was originally in the Labour Party and moved over to Kadima. Uh, you know, and during the Second Intifada, he tried to sell this idea of a wall to both major parties, Likud and Labour. Uh, Likud at the time was headed by Ariel Sharon, a former general. Labour at the time was headed by uh, Benjamin Ben-Eliezer, a former general. Both of these party leaders, both of these former generals, laughed in his face. But as they headed towards the elections, which ended up taking place in 2003, they saw polls that indicated that the, a large percentage of Israelis who were considered in the, to be in the center supported this idea of the wall, largely because the media had pushed it very hard, uh, I think, as a way to get, Palestine, to get Israeli buy-in to the two-state solution after Oslo resulted in the Intifada. And so both parties ended up adopting this policy in order to win over voters, and that became Israeli policy. Uh, it's, uh, in addition, I'd say from a security perspective, it wasn't uh, Operation, it wasn't the wall, but rather Operation Defensive Shield and also the Hamas Fatwa against suicide bombings that actually forced the Intifada to kind of uh, fizzle out. And I think. You know, um, it's also obviously very oppressive to Palestinians, not only oppressive, but even a symbol of oppression in the minds of many Palestinians. And I think the act of taking it down, and it takes courage. I understand that there are people who are scared, but overall, I think we need to drop this mentality that a lot of Israelis unfortunately have, that we are sheep and they are wolves, and we need all of these oppressive structures to protect us from the wolves.
You know, if, if I feel that somebody's a threat to me, I'm willing to fight. I don't need to create whole, an entire system of oppression in order to protect myself from uh, somebody who I think is a threat. And uh, ultimately, though, I think that the wall has been sold to us. And it's amazing to me also that uh, of all of Israel's policies, when you look at all of the policies that Israel's criticized for internationally, uh, the one that we don't receive so much criticism for is actually the wall, specifically from the United States, because ultimately it serves the U.S. agenda to divide this land in half. And the wall I think, has been created, constructed with the idea that it's ultimately creating a de facto border and that this country will be divided into two states, Chas Shalom, both dependent on the United States for survival. Great. Just to add to your point, Yuda, you did mention it briefly, but it's true that... Hold on, why are we getting an echo? Shouldn't be an echo now. Anyways, um, it's true that every single day Palestinians come come in and out without uh, going through security check. There are many vulnerabilities and they already are going through. So, you know, people do raise the question, if the wall is keeping terrorists out, then how is it that they're not getting in the same way many illegal workers are getting in and out? So I, I'd say, you know, there is some, you know, strength to that claim you're making that uh, it's not completely proven to, to be doing the job that we claim it's doing. But there is a lot of propaganda trying to push that idea. And that, of course, has influenced the husband. I, I see even in the chat, there are people who I assume are coming from a very pro-Israel place who think it's crazy that I'm talking about tearing down this wall because they've been conditioned to believe that that's what keeps us safe. I can assure you, and no Palestinians <laughs> for saying that. Yes, yeah, so it must be Israel. Right, meaning I think it's a very unhealthy mentality. Antoine, anything you'd like to uh, add to the wall uh, conversation before we move to annexation? You're, sil you're silenced again. Just to add that even myself as a Palestinian, I was told the, the, the narrative that the wall is for security purposes and uh, it comes to a point where you are able to access news and access Israeli reports, uh, reports that have been issued annually by the Shin Beit, which is a security agency in Israel, that recognizes clearly that it is the security collaboration that has put an end for the suicide attacks and not actually the war. Over 40,000 workers travel daily throughout those gaps of the world. There is no way actually to control them. Is that really... Hold on, we're getting echoed. You know, it's 2020 and we still struggle with these technical difficulties. One day soon we'll have them fully solved. Antoine, is that right that uh, uh, 40,000 come in illegally every single day? That's the reports that were issued annually by the Shin Beit, not by the Palestinian Authority, not by anyone else. So if this is the agency that protects your life, then we, you better trust them. Very interesting. Okay, I'm going to have to look into that because that's that's quite a number. Um, we're going to move on now to the topic of annexation. We're going to dedicate 10 full minutes to this topic. Um, uh, Antoine, why don't you start? What are your thoughts on annexation? Well, beyond the reality that annexation would mean technically the full death of the two-state solution, the full death of hope of 
for two-state solution for those who yet believe in a two-state solution in the framework of Oslo, it doesn't actually mean a thing because that annexation does not ch change my life, does not affect my life unless you're talking about a future Palestinian state within the Oslo parameters. In the present day, in today's life, this does not change my life. I'm stuck to a military law. You are stuck to a civil law. Annexation means basically that every Israeli who's living in Area C in the West Bank would be sub to civil law, and I will left again. I would be left again as a Palestinian, undermining my human security uh, right, and be subjected continuously to a military law. So yeah, this is what it means to me right now. Uh, beyond that, the realities on the ground are not changing. Israel has been controlling the land since 1967 in the West Bank. Even with the existence of a Palestinian authority, we have not been able to fully invest in those regions, in those lands, in area A, B, or C. And technically what it means is just Netanyahu fulfilling his promise of 1998 and saying also is dying, is dead. So do you kind of see this as just pr progressing the inevitable of a, of a one-state solution and you see that as a positive thing? I don't see a solution right now that is acceptable on the table. It's not a matter of a one-state or a two-state solution. It's a matter of actually having people, communities on both sides coming to a place of recognizing that if the vision is not based on a human security compass, then we're going to lose it one way or another, one side or another. And that's where the major challenge is, and that's what connects the narratives, because the narratives of liberation or peacemaking that have been sold so far have not been based on the, the wellness and the well-being of the individual and the other has been a negotiation of we can get more from the other before we lose and that is not that's not the way to move forward after the last 25 years it has showed that it's a complete failure I'm with you uh Yehuda, annexation yes or no um not within the context of the trump plan uh meaning that I agree with pretty much everything Antoine said, the two-state solution hasn't worked, it can't work, it won't work, and in my opinion, it shouldn't work. I'm somebody who is very connected to his national story and very connected to this land, and I'm not willing to divide it. I've been fighting against the paradigm of a two-state solution for almost 20 years, and uh, I think that uh, we, we can finally bury it. Uh, in terms of annexation, uh, I don't... I don't, first of all, I don't like the idea on principle. I, I find defensive the idea that we have to do this with American support or approval. I think that we have to function like an independent country and decide what our interests are and move forward. Uh, I think it's very dangerous to, to move forward with annexation within the context of the Trump plan, which is very ambiguous, meaning I think it's uh, intentionally very confusing. And it talks about annexing 30%. Uh, not 70%, relinquishing claims maybe to 70%. And, um, but, but I think one thing the Trump plan has done, because it's such a, a ridiculous caricature of the two-state solution, is just shown us, exposed how ridiculous the entire concept is at this point. So I do believe that this is one country. I do, you know, I do foresee this to end, including Gaza, eventually the Hashem. Uh, but I think that the only way to move forward in terms of applying Israeli sovereignty to Samaria, Judea, the West Bank, Gaza, is with Palestinian buy-in, is with Palestinians actually experiencing Israel differently. And that requires Israel to, again, the power dynamics favor us. We have to make the first moves. 
in terms of building trust and changing the role we play in their story. And of course, you know, then enter a, a more reciprocal process. Great. Um, you mentioned uh, buy-in for Palestinians. What, what, what do you mean by that? That they have the right to be Israeli if they want to, but they can remain independent? I'm sorry? You, Say it again? You, you, said it gave, you, you mentioned Palestinians have the right for a buy-in. Is that the word you used? Right. The way to move forward is, is by creating a situation that Palestinians are experiencing as increasingly better on a material level each step of the way. It, meaning that Israel can't just say, it's our right to be in control of this land and therefore we're gonna take control. Uh, whether you like it or not, it has to be much more of a taking responsibility for the human beings of this land and actually saying the opposite of what so many of our politicians say. You, you, we hear so many of our politicians say, we want the maximum amount of land with the minimal amount of Arabs. I'm saying that we have to look at the Palestinians as the people of our land, as the people we're building this country with, and as the people we're going to move forward with. And uh, that means that we have to change the relationship. And there is no, uh, again, we're, you know, I, I can't tell you what the end result of a process should look like, because I think ultimately Israelis and Palestinians are going to have to, uh, you know, go through the work of creating what comes, but I'll say that it has to speak to and really address the grievances and aspirations of both people, the core grievances and aspirations of both peoples. So, you know, it sounds like what you're, what you're talking about is a one-state solution, which will be Israel, where the, the conditions and just the deal in general is good enough that Palestinians feel welcome and that they feel like it is their home as well. Not, not just welcome, equal. Every, every single right voting, everything, no, no difference whatsoever? Well, I actually support a participatory democracy. So I'm not sure that in, in such a system and in direct democracy, I'm not sure that anybody really votes. I, I think this idea of, an, of a popularity contest every four years, um, you know, for politicians who anyway are much more beholden to their campaign financers isn't really democracy. For me, democracy is people power. It means empowering people to influence the structures they live under. So yes, I think that Palestinians and Israelis should both have equal power to influence the structures we live under. And for me, that's democratic power. Hey, Antoine, can you see a situation where Palestinians agree to a solution like that? We, we can't hear you again? Whatever you've done the past two times. So now do you hear me now? Yeah, yeah you're good. Um, I'm not sure if Palestinians would definitely jump on board of just becoming citizens of the state of Israel especially after the experiences of the last 80 years. That's where also the whole ambition of having a state and independence came from, because there hasn't been a receptory approach where people have been felt that they have been seen in the past. Um, therefore, I think this again goes back to the narrative and goes back to also what is the compass that people use when uh, they're looking at a future plan. Is it a human security for all? Is it only for one side? And how do we incorporate the whole narrative issues? Uh, Yehuda mentioned, yes, Palestinians and Israelis could live in one land, could be the state of Israel. That is a possibility. Yet I don't see Palestinians 
coming to a point of celebrating that without receiving the recognition of their own identity, of their own national identity, of their own cultural experience, of their own national experience. And that has to merge from a newer system. It wouldn't be a one-state solution that is called Israel or Palestine, one side or another. And I think this is where the point we have to come to face ourselves and actually realize that all the binaries that we have gone with in the last 25 years and the last 80 years wouldn't be helpful and that we will need to go for something non-linear in this way, to go for hybrids, maybe systems that we haven't even thought of. How do we create a system that celebrates communities' narratives, the communities' identities, gives representation for both those communities' narratives, identities, experiences, and providing the basic elements like human security for everyone, no matter what. So are we ready for that? I don't think we are right now, but I think we need to start investing in this approach rather than just thinking of one binary approach over the other. Otherwise, to be honest, it could be very nice to talk about it, but the reality is that at the end of the day, some one side will be angry and that's not going to be an end of a conflict. That's just going to be another plaster. Yes, so do you think, you know, you could see a situation in where your solution works, but it still gives Palestinians their uh, national aspirations of some sort? Can Palestine be an entity? within this land? Do, do you have any any ways you, you think that could happen? Well, I'll tell you, I have, I personally have very specific red lines. You know, for me, there is no compromise on Jewish independence in Eretz Israel. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean the Western nation-state model. Uh, we can talk about many different structures that allow us to experience Jewish independence in the land of Israel. Um, and that can simultaneously allow Palestinians to feel that they're able to express their identities, etc. Uh, things that I've, you know, thought about, uh, you know, there's different solutions floating around now. Now that the two-state solution is getting weaker and weaker and weaker, more and more alternative solutions seem to be uh, cropping up and being discussed. And the answer might be somewhere in the combination of many of these solutions. Like, of course, I think that we can absolutely absorb Palestinian society into a participatory democracy. Uh, but I think there might be Palestinian communities that want to have some sort of autonomy and uh, express their own, you know, uh, you know wh whether it's uh, the clans in certain parts of the West Bank that are more traditional or, or other places. And I think we can make space for that as well. I'd even say that, you know, one of the Noahide laws is for Gentiles who live in the land of Israel to have their own court systems, meaning there could be zones that are autonomous zones where Palestinians or specific uh, families or specific groups within Palestinian society are able to govern themselves, judge themselves, uh, you know, organize their own society. But I think that Israel should be paying the salaries, meaning even if you have a, uh, a Palestinian court that is structured according to Palestinian sense of justice and you have Palestinian culture and expressions of Palestinian identity in that autonomous zone, it's still Israel's responsibility to pay the salaries and, uh, and to make sure that at the end of the day there's justice in the entire land. Antoine, anything you'd like to, uh, to add? Again, I, I 
I just see that this is this is part of where we are stuck right now, where it has been the question of what is the solution, and mm -hmm. people have re have really focused for the last twenty five years on if the two state solution is going to work or if we have an alternative solution. And what I say after the last twenty five years, that's not where we should start. This is where everything is wrong has started actually, and if we are, if we have the balls enough to face ourselves, let's go visit kindergartens and see in kindergartens on both sides which map is being taught and what land it's being called and you'll find the reality that on both sides in every kindergarten the whole, whole map is taught as palestine on the west bank on gaza and the whole land the whole map is taught as israel in israel and this is a reality that we're not going to be able to hide anymore this is uh, part of the narrative the master narrative that we both hold our i hold and this is where our identity comes from Therefore, to look for hybrids, to look for alternatives, not to think in a, again in a binary way, it's this way or that way, uh, and to allow a new understanding of what is this self-governance of Jewish community, what is the self-governance of Palestinian community, and what is the common thing that humans alike or need, like food security, water security, education security, uh, health security. Those are human, universal, basic needs right now. They're not only Jewish exclusive they're not only palestinian exclusive and therefore if we fulfill those basic human needs for everyone alike the matter of narrative and identity would become a minor issue in determining our future in this life in this land so what i'm hearing is that if israel would actually be fair in allocating water to every human being in this country equally and to treat providing personal security to every human being in this country equally the, uh, the the need the Palestinian national narrative that needs to see a flag or a national anthem or a nation state called Palestine becomes weaker I that's where you misunderstand me what I'm saying is it's our collective responsibility mm -hmm. as humans who inhabit in this land to make sure that everyone who lives in this land sleeps with a full stomach has, has a right and access to education to health, and beyond that, those matters of uh, nationalism, flag, is the self-expression of communities. Those, those matters wouldn't have any impact on my human security, on my access to water, on my access to education, my access to health. The reason right now I cannot access right of freedom, of mood, movement, right of land property, is actually that there is a narrative that gives this exclusive, exclusively to the Jewish community. And this is where I again go back to the matter of narratives and exclusivity that we've been taught on both sides of who has the right to exist in this land. And if those are fixed, then those side, what I would call them side matters, like our culture, our narratives, our identity as communities could be celebrated without them being sold as threatening elements to the other. So it wouldn't be Israel's responsibility, it would be the collective responsibility. I don't want to hold Israel responsible for providing me water if me and my community are not being able collaboratively to develop our human, our water security. Right, no, the reason I bring that up is because it's specifically the Oslo Accords that led us to the situation we're in right now that created an unjust distribution of water. Meaning according to the Oslo Accords themselves, the water is allocated unequally. But that's not only also, that's the thing, Yehuda. It's not only also the fact that I cannot access 32 uh, uh, 
donums of my family's inherited land in Jerusalem does not come out of Oslo. It comes actually from a security order that was issued by the Israeli army in 1967 confiscating the land under the security pretext and it does not allow me to access the land. And what happens 20 years down the road is that this land is allocated for development of Jewish communities. And again, if you look at this again, you'll distinguish that the, the compass of development, the compass that gives direction to, to any development does not see the Palestinian as an eligible human that has that right. And therefore, if we don't change those root issues, we will not be able to move forward in my view. Right. Yeah. I, I agree. And that, that's an educational issue on both sides. And uh, in our side, I think part of the problem here, and I, I get into this, I think, with a lot of, uh, a lot of Jews who you know, speak about, for example, our indigeneity, like the idea that we're natives to this land. I say the problem isn't whether we're natives or not natives. The problem is that we're behaving like we're not natives. Meaning, I would say that Israel's military occupation of the West Bank actually undermines the Jewish people's legitimate connection to Judean Samaria. Because the Jews in Judea were not the Americans in Afghanistan, but as you've pointed out, we behave like we are. And the only way we're going to be able to, um, I would say at this point, our liberation, your liberation, my liberation, are very much intertwined. And I'd say that in many ways, since 1967, and for some Palestinians even before, you are very much victims of a Jewish identity crisis. And almost everything is connected in this land. So it seems like there's an across-the-board agreement that any solution we propose, it seems like it would fail because the, gr just the ground is not ready for peace to be born. There's so much work that needs to be done beforehand on an educational level, on a policy level, on a cultural level, and once we get the playing field ready for peace, that's when the solutions can begin to be born. Right, but I think it's, it's important we talk about who become the peacemakers, meaning who are our respective ambassadors to the community of the other, and what is the mentality shift that needs to take place. Meaning I hold very strongly that in order for us to move forward, we have to first of all reject the two-state solution entirely, we have to create the conditions and create programs for the Jews and Palestinians most fully living their people's aspirations, not the westernized diplomats from Ramallah and Tel Aviv, but those who are willing to, to fight and kill and die for the things that are most important to us, to be able to come together and engage the story of the other, the identity of the other, the narrative of the other, without fear of it undermining our own. Meaning I believe that if we're going to say, I'm not in power and Antoine is not in power. We don't make any real decisions in terms of what's going on at a policy level. The best thing that we can do is facilitate dialogue sessions for those in our community who live their identities very strongly and very deeply to be able to meet the other and actually hear his story and find a way to pick a bigger narrative that transcends the ostensibly rival narrative. Great. Um, Antoine, anything you'd like to add before we move on to a slightly different topic? Move on. Cool. I guess we'll take a quick intermission. Um, the intermission is to welcome anybody, any viewers who did not were not here from the beginning. Uh, this is the great Israel-Palestine debate. We do this every single week. 
Our two guests, Yudan Cohen and Antoine Saka, it's their first time. They're doing a great job, and one of the ways you can tell they're doing a great job is that this video has 17 upvotes and zero downvotes. When have you ever seen a discussion on the Israel-Palestine conflict that had only positivity? So I would say that is testament to our guests doing a great job. Uh, by the way, uh, a link to their contact information, uh, their Facebook and their website is in the description. So if you want to get in touch with Antoine or Yehuda after this discussion, feel free to reach out to them. They, they love to engage in di dialogue. My info is there too. Uh, feel free to reach out to me as well. And if this is your first time here and you enjoy what you see, please subscribe. Uh, Yehuda. Can I our, our yeah. magazine. We have a we have a whole online magazine where these conversations are taking place more on the Jewish side, meaning in terms of the internal Jewish conversation pertaining what we're talking about, and that's visionmag.org, vision magazine, visionmag.org, and uh, the conversation we're having internally within the Jewish community is taking place there. Right. I just uh, put visionmag.org in the. Uh in the chat, someone commented 26 upvotes. Yeah, people um, people heard my call and uh, threw their support forward, so thank you. Uh, I'm interested, we won't stay on this topic long, because I, I think you guys both have a very, very interesting perspective in that it's very interpersonal what you're talking about. I, you, don't, you don't rail too much against governments, and it's... It's less policy, more philosophical, ideological, and what people could do. Um, I have a feeling you would be in agreement on this issue as well, so we will do it quickly unless we find disagreements, and then we'll, we'll stay on this. But settlements. So most people around the world who are interested in the conflict would, would consider you, Yehuda, a settler, and they would say that you live in a settlement. But you mentioned to me that there's a better term you prefer. So would you mind explaining uh, that perspective? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, I actually don't live in a settlement. I live on a mountain next to one. Uh, but I do, I do think that the uh, terminology is very problematic because I think it has connotations. Um, I think, first of all, I'll, I'll say there is structurally um, what appears to be settler colonialism taking place, and in fact, I think most of it is taking place very close to Antoine. Uh, Gush Etzion, uh, the Jewish communities just south of Jerusalem, are for the most part, maybe with the exception of Bat Ein, functioning according to structures of settler colonialism. Uh, and I think a lot of the people there, the, the Jews who live there, are completely oblivious to this. And have no idea, you know, if any are listening, they probably have no idea what I'm even talking about. But I think that uh, I would just prefer saying, you know, West Bank Jewish communities. Uh, you know, in English, the word settler has a connotation of being an alien, being a foreigner who's in a place you don't belong. And in Hebrew, the word mitnachel, which shares a root with nahala, which basically means uh, like tribal inheritance, uh, has a connotation of indigeneity. So I think when we use this English word settler, um, we're already, you know, making the claim that the Jews have no uh, legitimate reason to be in the West Bank, in Samaria, or in Judea, where for us, in our story, this is really the cradle of Jewish civilization. And I, I'd say we're not monolithic. You know, the Jews living in the West Bank are not a monolith. They're 
huge divide between Jews living in Hebron and Jews living in Ephraim, Jews living in Beit El and Jews living in Maledumim, Jews living in Yitzar and uh, Jews living in Shiloh. But I would say the common denominator that I think we all probably share is this idea that we're a proud ancient people from this land. We were unjustly displaced against our will by the Roman Empire. Somehow we managed to survive, keep our identity intact, and return against all odds 2,000 years later to the land we were displaced from. And now we experience the international community trying to displace us again through this two-state solution. And the only means of resistance we figured out so far has been to populate as much of the West Bank as possible to make it impossible to remove us. And that's kind of the story most Jews living in the West Bank are experiencing. And Palestinians are actually very peripheral to, to this. They're not really even the antagonist in this story. The main antagonist in the story are Western governments trying to impose a two-state solution and displace us from the lands that we've struggled for so many centuries to come back to. So you would prefer uh, Jews living in the West Bank to settler? Sure, West Bank, Ju Judean. I, you know, I, I, I like the term Judean, but uh, West Bank Jew is still better than settler. I think settler is a, a very negative. And again, I, I acknowledge that in many cases, we are unfortunately still living as settlers. And that is part of our identity crisis that we need to unpack. I think that, you know, one thing, and this is very internal, I guess, to Israeli society, you know, in 1948, we beat the British. We had roughly a 10-year anti-colonial struggle against British rule. The British left in 1948. And what we did was we basically took down their flag and we put our flag on their system. We continued the structures of the British mandate, the system of the British mandate, but with Jewish decorations and we called it a Jewish state. And we never went through this very necessary uh, post-colonial process of actually figuring out our identity, what does Jewish state mean, what values, what identity should be expressed in the policies and institutions and structures of a Jewish state. We just basically created a European-style nation-state with some very shallow Jewish decorations that are actually uh, very hard and very othering to non-Jews, but not deeply Jewish enough to satisfy the Haredim, for example. And I think moving forward, in terms of what we call a Jewish state, we need to uh, kind of shift towards a state that's much more softly Jewish, but at the same time much more deeply Jewish, meaning those with the most Jewish literacy, with the most Jewish education, should be able to see the Jewishness, our identity being expressed in the structures and policies and institutions, while those who are not Jewish barely notice it's a Jewish state and just experience a democratic society where they have full equality. And which means, can, can you be Jewish, but more softly Jewish. So does that mean that there's no law that is an actual Jewish law? So for example, is, is your idea that Israel will not be a theocracy in, in the sense that Jewish law is actual law of the land, but culturally there's Jewish elements? Is that what you're saying? More than that, I would say that it's not the final laws that necessarily have to be Jewish law, but the legal structure. Meaning, for example, Jewish law has developed for thousands of years and is actually much more advanced than Roman law, which is the basis of Western law today. So if we actually have, if our people have an ancient legal system that's developed over the centuries and continues to a certain extent 
developing even today, um, then if, for example, your dog damages my bicycle and we find ourselves in court, I think the judge should not be ruling according to British common law, but according to Baba Kama. Now, there's nothing about that that forces people to uh, observe any halachot. It's just our people's understanding of what justice is and what our people's understanding of what justice is for centuries in the case where one person's property damages another person's property. So I'm talking about the actual legal structure on a much deeper level than just what the end result law is. Okay, great. A Antoine, any, any thoughts on that or in general on what thing? I think there has been a lot of expected on the Palestinian side to give kosher certificates for Jews who live within proper lines or not proper lines. Uh, the bottom line for me, an Israeli who inhibits the land right now and does not see my existence, my human security as an equal, is not a partner for peace. Whether you're living in Tel Aviv or whether you're living somewhere else. I am not going to give a kosher certificate for Israelis who live in the land who lives uh, in Tel Aviv versus someone who is in the West Bank. For me, both are occupation. And just to elaborate more, what does that mean? It means that basically your existence as is within the scope of policies that has been created does not see me, does not see my existence, does not see my human security. Therefore, am I requested to give a kosher certificate for Israelis? Who's a good Israeli? Who's a bad Israeli? That's not my job. That's your own internal debate as a Jewish community. To understand yourself, to understand whatever you want to be in. Eventually, what it matters to me as a Palestinian that whatever policies are made is to see me by the end of the day as an equal peer in the Islam who deserves the same rights that a person who lives in Tel Aviv enjoys or a person who lives in the West Bank enjoys. And again, this is why annexation does not really affect me because I'm sub to a military law versus Yehuda or Yuadar where you're both sub to a civil law. You know, I need to tell you both that I've truly appreciated this conversation so far because you both see things so vastly different from what the mainstream is. It's like literally almost everything you both said is quite original and, and not, not heard in the mainstream. Uh, this, I guess I'm going to do this live, but I, I'd like to invite you both to do a one-on-one -on -one session on my podcast, Standing Up, where you guys will just both have way more time to get deep into the issues and really explain, you know, your, your perspectives, because I think you both have a lot to offer and um, it's really refreshing to hear a lot of what you're saying. Uh, we have around 20 minutes left before Antoine needs to leave. I can stay on a little bit longer. Yehuda, you're free to stay or go, up to you. But let's, uh, let's do some questions. I, I see the audience is active. They wanna know some stuff. Uh, audience, now's the time to ask some questions. If you asked a question earlier, please ask it again because too much chat to look through. Here's a good, uh, this is from Kate. Nope, wrong one. Bedir, maybe that's a question that we'll ask. I just want to look at it first. Kate, question for Antoine. Would you say it would be an aspiration of the Palestinians to institute Sharia law? Well, that's another, again, uh Another thing that we Palestinians need to start our own conversations in, I'm a Palestinian, but I'm not a Muslim. Therefore, uh, subbing to whether a halakha law or a sharia law is not my interest. 
I'm interested in a democracy that guarantees my rights equally and like everyone in the land. Now, if it's a Sharia law to govern the um, institution of marriage between Muslims, that's for them to apply among themselves, just like I, I will apply a Christian law to institute, to regulate marriage, in a, which is right now, to regulate marriage between Christians. So, um, is it about Sharia law? I don't think this is, has been a scare crew tactic that have been used for the last 25 years, why Israelis should separate from the Palestinians because they're going to be an Islamic state and so on. And my, my invitation for Israelis would be actually to go beyond this or actually to, to ask beyond this. Do you really know Palestinians? Do you know what the foundation of the Palestinian identity even? The whole Palestinian identity evolved as an anti-religious, anti-tribal identity. It was the first identity that emerged in, the, in this region post uh, second, first and second world war that was actually against tribalism and specific religious tribalism. The first Palestinian parliament that was found in the 30s had Jews, Christians and Muslims in it. The constitution was very clear then that it's not a Muslim state. And therefore, yeah, in a Palestinian identity all colors should be welcomed. All religions have a space in my wish and in my uh, vision for a future of a Palestinian identity. And definitely it's not my uh, wish or interest to have one side over the other, religiously or politically. I'd like to add to what you said, Antoine. Um, I think your response was great. And I, I think something that people need to understand, I saw questions being asked about Palestinian culture as well, seeing Palestinian culture as a roadblock to the peace process. It's important to understand that, that culture is not created in a vacuum. It is, is it, a, it is a result of environment. So, so much of what you can point to as being problematic in Palestinian culture very well may be the living conditions that Palestinians currently are living under. When people are in despair, when people are in pain, when people are suffering, that breeds extremism and it often breeds religious fun fundamentalism. There was very interesting Pew polling from, I think it was 2014, the numbers may have changed, but it showed 80-something percent of Palestinians support Sharia. And it showed in Lebanon, only 29% support Sharia. What's the difference between the Lebanese and, and the Palestinians? Well, I'm sure there's many differences, but one of them is that Palestinians are not currently living as free people. They can't travel from city to city or to work without stopping at a checkpoint. Their conditions are brutalizing them and that affects their culture. So if we want to talk about uh, Palestinian culture, we actually also need to talk about Israel and how they affect Palestinian society. Um, just my two cents on the issue. Yuda, feel free to um, add something on that before we continue. Um, you by all means no. don't have If anybody has a specific question for me, I'm happy to... Uh... I'm happy to uh, yeah, love this. Uh, expensive brother, thank you for the question. Yehuda, what do you mean by Jewish law? Many have faced troubles in Israel from the main rabbinic inst institutions. Might be misinterpreting, but some people don't want to live under a religious law system. I think that's a great right. question. Right, that is a great question, and I think it comes from a, a misunderstanding of Jewish identity. Jewish identity is not a religious identity, uh, and that's part of maybe the decolonization we need to experience. 
um, we actually, the, the children of Israel actually predate a lot of these social constructs like religion and nation and culture and ethnicity and it's a race, you know, we, we existed before all these concepts. I'd say the closest thing to what the children of Israel are is a civilization kind of similar to the, to the Mayans or, or, you know, that we have a national component and we have a territorial component and we have a spiritual component and we have a legal component. And because we spent so many centuries in exile from our land, and because the only way our identity was expressed, even the legal aspects of our identity became um, contextualized as like religious laws, even when they had nothing to do with spirituality and nothing to do, you know, like what I said before about uh, Bavakama, this idea that your dog damages my bicycle, we go to court, uh, nothing, there's nothing about, there's nothing ritualistic there, there's nothing spiritual there, there's just an, uh, an ancient people's idea of how justice can be served in this situation. And I think that that's, that's why decolonizing Jewish identity needs to be such a central part of moving forward, at least for Israeli society, because we are currently figuring ourselves out. We're unique in history. We spent 2000 years in a very abnormal situation being internally colonized, you know, in the lands of those who actually oppressed us and displaced us and many aspects of our identity were uh, were uh, impacted, some through internal cultural evolution, as all ancient peoples experienced, but also through a lot of external coercion. And we need to have a national conversation about that. And we need to figure out uh, who we are and, uh, and stop seeing ourselves as a religion. In fact, I think it's important that, that viewers understand that this idea of Jewish identity being a religious identity is really only a couple hundred years old. It was born in the Haskalah when Jews in places like Germany and France were offered civil rights and legal inclusion in exchange for our identity. All we had to do was redefine ourselves, not as the Palestinian refugees that we actually were for 1700 years until then, uh, who were always focused on going home and going home and going going home and every aspect of our culture and every festival and every uh, life cycle event always spoke about coming back to Jerusalem and having independence again. But uh, really we redefined ourselves as Germans with a Jewish religion or Frenchmen with a Jewish religion. And of course, many Jews in the United States today also see themselves as Americans with a Jewish religion. And that we have to acknowledge is the colonization of our identity. And now that we've come back to our land and now that we've revived our language, we need to also clarify our own identity for ourselves and in order to move forward. Are there, so uh, we, we don't have time to get too deep into this, but, but briefly, are there aspects of the cultures we picked up while we were exiled that you think are worth preserving? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that um, when we left Egypt, uh, thousands of years ago when we were slaves in Egypt and we finally gained our freedom, we left Egypt with a lot of gold, okay? Some of that gold went to building the Mishkan, the tabernacle, which is a very positive thing in our culture. And some of that gold went to building the golden calf. So to, to apply the metaphor to our experiences in other people's countries over the last 2000 years, we've come back here with a lot of gold. We've come back here with a lot of influences from the countries we've been in, but we need to sift. 
we need to filter that gold. We need to filter the influences that we've picked up and decide what is actually good for our identity, good for our collective mission moving forward, and what's bad for us. And we have to have, we have to institute some kind of filtration process. And that filtration process is really knowing our identity and having a conception of our own meta narrative and seeing, you know, what of that which we've picked up is positive versus negative. What is the Mishkan and what is the golden calf um, from all of the different things we've picked up in all the places we've gone? So it's not simple. Right. And that's why the colonial conversation is so important for us at this point. Yeah, I think when we have our combo, we'll dedicate like a full hour just to that topic because I think it's very, very interesting. Um, this is a question by Rami Rabaya. What do you think the great Israel-Palestine could bring to the new world? What kind of role it could play in the new post-COVID power dynamics? I are, are, are you referring to the great Israel-Palestine debate, like these conversations, or, or the nations of Israel and Palestine? Let, let's assume he's referring to the nations of Israel and Palestine. As, as much as I think what we're doing here is important, I, I don't think so highly of, of, of what I'm doing yet to think that it can change the dynamics, hopefully one day, but let, let's refer to it as nation. What can a unified Israel and Palestine contribute to the world, essentially? Antoine, you want to go first? I think this would be the blast that we could bring to the world. We're talking about a conflict that has a multiple layers of complexity of it, whether it's nationalism, whether it's narratives, whether it's religion. If you look globally, you see Islamophobia, you see anti-Semitism, uh, anti-Christianity, anti-whatever. and coming to a reality where we are stuck actually in a small piece of land and we have all those things that are of the bigger conflict that exist globally all found in a tense small piece of land. If we are actually to mature a bit and find a way out, yeah, we could bring something good for the world. We can be bringing an understanding of how to move in this complexity, how to create new worlds within this complexity. Uh, within the, the parameters of COVID, I think COVID has proved everyone that nobody is immune. No state, no country, no army. Armies are, are used this right now. The only army that is useful is the army of doctors. And therefore, to really go back in and to re-understand if we are brave enough, where to invest the human security element, what is needed basically for people to maintain their existence, to maintain and to go into not only survival, thrive it also. So yeah, if we are mature enough, if we are given that space, maybe we can bring that gift to the world. We're talking about a, uh, basically an image that defies uh, the, the Islamophobia, defies uh, anti-Semitism. Uh, if you're talking about Palestinians as Christians and Muslims and also as Jews living together in one land and coming to solve this, it's in a way a lesson that could be taught globally, not only locally. Okay, I, I just want to add, I, I'll just, you know, from a historical perspective, it's important to acknowledge that every time the children of Israel have had independence in this land, we've given the world something. We've actually impacted the world in a positive way. And I don't think this should be any different. I think part of this conversation, uh, at least on the Israeli side, 
needs to, at this point, requires a shift from narrow Jewish nationalism, which we can call Zionism, to a uniquely Hebrew universalism. And for us to not think about just our own people's liberation, but also what we believe we have to give the world now that we're back on the stage of history. And I think that ultimately, you know, our aspiration to be should be to create the type of society here that really sets an example to the rest of the world. Obviously, conflict resolution is going to be a big part of that. Minority rights are going to be a big part of that. And the only way to, to know you're doing it right is when the rest of the world, without coercion, without speeches, they just look at what's going on in your land and they say, these people have gotten something right and we need to learn from them. And that's really the point we need to aspire to get to, to, to get to the point where we've clearly done something so right here. We've created uh, structures uh, and a society that is obviously um, superior, you know, in many ways to the societies that uh, are currently dominating the world. And I, I would go further. I, I actually think Israel came back to life after 2000 years in order to lead mankind into a post-capitalist world. And we uh, are not yet at the point of kind of internalizing that mission. But uh, once we figure out who we are and what we came back to life for, and not only do I think solving our issues with the Palestinians uh, will become so much easier, but also we'll start to, we'll, we'll stop playing defense and start playing offense and start really thinking about what we have to offer mankind and what kind of world we want to see. Thank you. Thank you both. Um, Antoine, before you need to run, you, I do have a follow-up, but I just, Antoine needs to run. So I want to give him some, some final words. Is there anything you want to say before you have to go? Uh, just important for me to mention for the viewers that uh, when we are in a way blessed specifically at such times to have a space where such communication can happen in a healthy approach, it's very important to distinguish that this kind of communication happens uh, for a limited reason. It's not, this is not the way of making peace. This is uh, a tool that helps us come to a point of understanding what we need to move forward. And therefore, dialogue specifically and this kind of debates or conversations are a must and are needed. And therefore, to honor those spaces, to understand what is the importance of having such dialogues. I believe that Palestinians should be uh, able to have a space to look in the eyes of those who they consider their enemy uh, and vice versa as radiant and bring their pain to each other. And it's not to expect from that that we will create peace, but it's actually to uh, maintain a practice of non-violence that's not limited only to dialogue, but it's actually coming, it's, it's about coming, bringing people to uh, be able to tell each other what's paining them from the other side policy. And that's not the end of the story, because that's actually where the story end starts. When I come to a point where I can tell the Israeli side, this is where my pain is coming from, then I expect the Israeli side to take an action based on that. If the Israeli side does not take an action based on that, then the Israeli community should expect to see Palestinians going down to the streets. My goal, my uh, message has been always about non-violence activism, and this is why dialogue is important. I come to those spaces, I come to those debates, tell the Israeli whether a partner, an existing partner, an old partner, or a new partner, uh, to tell them what's paining me. And beyond that, there is a space for action that's always needed. Dialogue in itself is not going to change the reality. We need actions on the ground.
Beautifully said, Antoine. Uh, dear brother, thank you so much. It truly has been a pleasure speaking to you, and I'm looking forward to doing this again with you soon. I see a lot of Yehuda. questions in the chat. Yeah, yeah, Yehuda, do you have a few more minutes? I can take a couple more minutes. Antoine, it's really been a pleasure. I look forward to seeing you again soon. Um, and uh, wish you the best until next time we meet. Thank you and have a good time, guys. And so, then there were uh, two. Yeah, and I see a lot of questions in the chat uh, about indigeneity. I mean, about you're, you're, your audio guys. cut out. Hold on, Yuda, your audio cut out. I'm sorry? My audio I'm not hearing you. Why is that? Let's try now. Okay. Still nothing. Now? It's weird. It's as if Antoine had your audio. He brought your audio to the table. Uh -huh. Okay. Is anybody uh, hearing Yehuda, or is it is it just me? Hmm. Yehuda, try now. Can you hear me? Are you able to hear me? No? Oh, people are saying, oh, oh, it's just on my end for some reason. Speak, speak. Some people are hearing me, and I'll hear this later. Um, I, I noticed a lot of questions about indigeneity, about Gaza, about security. Um, I, I can try to address... Um, you know, some of these questions with the few minutes we have left, if that's okay. Uh, first of all, I, I think it's important to acknowledge that this is probably the only conflict in the world where the concept of indigeneity has really been weaponized by both sides against the other. And I think that uh, indigeneity is also a, a, a hard, um, there's so many definitions that uh, serve so many different agendas. I think, you know, when we say the Jewish people are indigenous to this land, uh, I think it's actually more accurate to say the English word indigenous is a good word for describing the relationship we've always felt to this land. I think that's probably more, um, more accurate than just saying indigenous or not indigenous. And of course, I think Palestinians also have, you know, indigeneity here. I think you can have more than one indigenous population in the land. And uh, in many, I, I think even many of the Palestinians are actually descendants of our ancestors. So I don't think, um, you know, who is here first is a good argument in, in terms of uh, moving forward. And I also don't think indigeneity should be used as a pro-Israel talking point. It's like an Israel advocacy talking point. I think when we discuss Jewish indigeneity, it should be within the context of connecting deeper to our identity, uh, desiring to indigenize back into the Semitic region, feeling solidarity with other indigenous peoples, but not necessarily as a Hasbara talking point to prove that we are right and the other side is wrong. I think that's actually quite immature. Uh, in terms of Gaza, look, Gaza is part of our homeland. Gaza is part of the land of Israel. I was very active in the struggle to, to protect Gaza from Ariel Sharon and George W. Bush in 2005. 
I still haven't given up on Gaza. I'm still committed to returning to Gaza. But I think that return to Gaza, of course, will have to involve, um, you know, getting Palestinian buy-in on the ground. And uh, one idea that I think should be considered is offering uh, every Palestinian in Gaza, uh, and this is also a means of you know, wealth redistribution, but offering every Palestinian uh, in Gaza the option of going back to wherever they fled in 1948, you know, those that fled, you know, Beersheba or Akko or Yafo or Haifa or, or wherever they fled from to Gaza in 1948, uh, and offer them, you know, luxury homes or luxury apartments at Israel's expense that they would own straight out in the places they came from in 1948, the places they say they're committed to returning to, that Israel will, you know, pay for, and uh, as a means of, you know, uh, wealth redistribution and also, of course, solving uh, the population uh, crisis in Gaza. And of course, I'm also committed to rebuilding the Jewish communities that were destroyed, Gush Katif in northern Gaza, and, uh, you know, and maybe one day I'll even choose to, uh, to live there, Hizrat Hashem, and uh, my grandkids can come and visit me, you know, on the beach in Gaza. Now I can't hear you. Yeah, I, I was muted, but you, you came back halfway through, so I heard the second half of your response. Um, I, I have a question for you. A, a lot of a lot of the, your narrative and your, your solution to the conflict has to do with Jewish identity and Jewish, Jewishness of the land. My concern with this, I, I have a few, but one of my main concerns is how do we give Palestinians the feeling that they're equal in a land that has that is so Jewish? Or and maybe it's not only Palestinians, anybody who's non-Jewish. Because I don't think the Jewishness uh, again. I, think, sorry? I, I said this earlier, I'm not sure if you caught it, or maybe or, or maybe it, it won't satisfy you. That's a you question. But uh, what I said before is that the Jewish character of the state should be such that it's most recognizable to those with Jewish literacy. Meaning the more of a Jewish education one has, the more they'll see the Jewishness being expressed in the state. And the less of the Jewish education somebody has, uh, certainly non-Jews, the less they'll experience or perceive the Jewishness of the state. Meaning that right now we have a European style nation state with very hard Jewish decorations that are too Jewish for Palestinians, but not Jewish enough for Haredim. And okay. I'm talking about a Jewish state that's much more softly Jewish, but much more deeply Jewish. And by the way, when I say deeply Jewish, that could also involve a focus on the aspects of our identity that we share with other Semitic peoples, including Palestinians meaning Palestinians might look at some of the aspects of our state as expressing their identity, even though, you know, Jews with deep Jewish educations might see those things as expressions of our identity. Okay. And again, I think that the more deeply Jewish society is, the more softly Jewish it can be. So I'm not talking about othering symbols. I'm talking about a Jewishness that's really deeply in the structures 
institutions of the country that's expressed in a way that's really only recognizable to those of us who have a you know real Jewish education and to others almost do, do you have some examples of, of what that would look like what like what a Jewish institution would look like what what's something that only once learning you would re realize it's Jewish but if you're not it would just seem like regular part of society um, yeah, I mean, one is what I mentioned before about uh, tort laws. Um, I'll give you an example, the national anthem. I have a very strong emotional connection to Hatikva. I actually think it's holy. Uh, I think it was sanctified by Jewish freedom fighters who sang it on their way to British gallows. Yet at the same time, um, I recognize some very important truths about Hatikva. Number one, I think, you know, even from a Jewish perspective, it speaks to a very specific experience that's not really relevant to this chapter of our story. It was very relevant to a specific chapter of Jewish history and in a very specific geographic location that is no longer our reality. In fact, I would say that Zionism changed those conditions or created new conditions which addressed the, the problems expressed in Hatikva. I also think that Hatikva is not Jewish enough for Haredim. It's very hard for them to sing or take seriously as a Jewish song. And it's way too Jewish for Palestinians and other non-Jews in our land. So I would be in favor of a, a new anthem. I might continue to sing Hatikva at my Shabbat table because I do think it's a holy song and it's an important song in our people's history. But I would be in favor of a new national anthem that is more deeply Jewish yet at the same time more softly Jewish so that Palestinians can sing it proudly and see their own experience in it, and Jews can also sing it proudly, Haredim can sing it proudly and see their own experience in it. And the, the, um, the song, I'm not a songwriter, but uh, I landed on something which I thought could actually work, and ironically, or maybe not ironically, was a contender to be our national anthem at one point, and that's uh, Shir HaMalot. You know, Shir HaMalot was a, uh, in, from Tehillim, and it's something we sing, you know, on Shabbatot and on Chagim, on festivals, you know, before Bikat Amazon. If you think about, first of all, who wrote it, it was written by David. You know, we consider him to be one of our greatest national leaders, king in Jerusalem, David Melech. Uh, to many Palestinians, he's an ancient Palestinian king. And to many Muslims, he's a prophet. And mm. what's the song really about? The song is about of people in exile yearning to come back to this land. Refugees wanting to come back there. And I think if that song were to be available in Hebrew and in Arabic, uh, both populations can probably really connect to it. Now, when I mentioned this to my wife, who I would also say is a pioneer in this uh, post-colonial conversation, uh, she said, well, why do we need to have a national anthem at all? That's kind of a feature of a Western nation state. And who says we had a national anthem thousands of years ago? Maybe we just don't need one. So, you know, it, there's layers and layers and layers to this conversation. But ultimately, I think right. to be thinking about, you know, banks not charging interest might be a good example. You know, banks not charging interest might be an example to what you're asking uh, or Shemitah, like the Shemitah year, the sabbatical year, actually having socioeconomic ramifications in terms of the alleviation of debts uh, and similar things. Like to really talk about what the right. Jewish looks like 
not talking about forcing people to observe Jewish law. I never said that. I'm talking about what does a Jewish economy look like? What do minority rights look like in a Jewish society? You know, to this day, there are Jews uh, in this country who name their daughters Yael. Yael, the original Yael, was a non-Jewish woman who lived in our land, meaning she was part of a people that were our allies, a non-Jewish population that lived in our land with us as allies. And Yael did something that made her a hero of Jewish history to the point that over 3,000 years later, Jews still named their daughters Yael. Meaning, you know, when we were in exile, there were two types of people. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. And for the most part, the Gentile was the oppressor. The Gentile was the enemy. But whenever we've had power, whenever we've had independence in our own land, there are many more categories of people. And I think that we need to take a, a more powerful approach. I mean, part of our problem is we're not comfortable with power. You know, now that we have power again, we need to be um, engaging these questions from a point of security and not from a point of insecurity not from a point of vulnerability. Right. And means actually asking ourselves the question, what is the ideal role of a non-Jew in our society? And I don't think that uh, if we really had that conversation in a serious way, I, I don't think we'd be okay with the current structures that are in place and the way that Palestinians are experiencing this. Great. Are you, um, and would, would you be open to certain aspects of, of Jewish culture that was once acceptable very well not make sense today so you are open to you know leaving some things in the past and not not bringing them back right I'm, I, when i talk about a post-colonial conversation i want to be very um clear about what i mean I, i'll use a metaphor if we have five minutes sure um let's say that uh you said you grew up in new jersey right you were a teenager mm -hmm. in new jersey yeah okay so let's say when you were 12 years old uh, a bunch of people uh, you know, some local gang invades your family's home in New Jersey. They rearrange the furniture. They force you to adopt a vegan cuisine. They force you to listen to, I don't know, country Western music. And there's nothing you can do because they have guns. And you're 12 years old and you're basically powerless to stop them. Five years go by and now you're 17. And you decide you've had enough and you decide to fight back and you actually succeed enforcing them from your home. And now your home is free, your family is free. Now you have to have a conversation. Where did the furniture used to be? That's one part of the conversation. But another part of the conversation is, do we want to put it back or do we like it this way? Mm. You know, we might've gotten used to a vegan cuisine. It's healthy, you know, it's, but it was forced on us by the oppressor. So right. do we go back to the food we ate before or do we want to continue as vegans or something in between also the music? I hate country western music because it was forced on me by the oppressor but at the same time I was 12 when they showed up and I was 17 when they left and a lot of my coming of age experiences really took place against the backdrop of that music meaning that's been the soundtrack of my coming of age so I might have very strong emotional connections to this music which I also experience as the music of the oppressor so that's the post-colonial conversation really trying to figure out what we're going to put back the way it was, what we're going to keep as is. Yeah, and, and that's what Israel needs to do. And that's much more complicated than just saying we're going to go back to what things were like last time. Right. We were 
I, I think that's that's actually a brilliant analogy. Um, it's just taking a look at the room and asking if we're okay with how everything is or if there's some things we'd like to change. Makes sense. Right, right. right. And that's a conversation we need to engage in. And again, I'll, I'll you know stress this point. I think in many ways, Palestinians are actually victims of a Jewish identity crisis. You know, in 1967, we came back to the lands that we've been dreaming about for thousands of years. Like we weren't really dreaming about Tel Aviv and Haifa for thousands of years. We were dreaming about Bethlehem and Hebron and Jerusalem and Shiloh and Shechem and Beit El and Jericho. These are the places that we have been obsessed with and preoccupied with for thousands of years. And we came back in 1967, but we said, okay, on the one hand, this is the cradle of Jewish civilization. But on the other hand, the Americans and Europeans don't want us here. But on the other hand, we need these mountains to protect our densest population centers. But on the other hand, there are all these non-Jews here. What are we going to do with them? So for the last 53 years, we've done everything and nothing. We've basically been unclear ourselves about what we're doing. And, you know, internally, we might understand all of the different, you know, factors that go into the conversation, all the different considerations and the different forces within Jewish identity and within the Jewish people that are pulling in different directions. But Palestinians might not be sensitive to that. Palestinians might just experience themselves being lied to all the time. Well, we say one thing, we do another thing. You know, so I think we have to be very clear. We, we have an obligation, not just to ourselves, but also to the other peoples in this land to actually unpack and heal our trauma, because we have lots of trauma. We came back to this land with a lot of trauma and a lot of insecurities and, uh, and a lot of um, colonized, internal colonization. You know, we need to unpack that and we need to get healthy, not just for our sake, but for the sake of the other people's sake. Beautiful, brother. Any Anything you'd like to wrap it up with? No, just give another plug for the Vision Movement and Vision Magazine, visionmag.org. Uh, you can find that in the description. You yeah, find and you just uh, contact subscribe. Me. There's an option subscribe, to subscribe exactly. and join us. I, I've okay. seen, by the way, while this is going on, I've seen a lot of really interesting conversations in the chat, uh, and I really invite everybody, also Adar, and also all of the people joining us, and all the people who are later going to watch this on YouTube. I invite you to join the conversation, and uh, you know, and, and from my perspective, that really begins with subscribing to the magazine and. Uh, and participating in this conversation because it's not just a conversation that should be happening in one tiny ideological Jewish movement, but really within the Jewish people and within the entire land, with all of the peoples of the land, and maybe ultimately in the entire Semitic region, because we've all been victimized by, by imperial powers, you know, over the centuries, especially in the last century. And, uh, you know, the only way forward really is unity. Well said. Great to have you, Yuda, and I'd uh, love to have you back soon. Thank you. Uh, guys, whoever's still here, we'll still continue for a few minutes. Um, first of all, thank you for joining. I, I want to tell you that I've seen, this is the eighth debate, and I've already seen a difference in how the conversations are happening in the chat. People are more respectful, and in general, we're seeing less denial of each other of, the, of each other's right to self-determination and just acceptance of the other's narrative we are for for anyone who doesn't understand why that's wrong because i did see some people you know just 
negating any people's claims that they have right to this homeland. You will never convince an Israeli or a Palestinian that they don't have the right to this land. You're starting your argument in a position where nobody will hear you except for people who already agree with you. It's That is the definition of preaching to the choir. You will never, ever, ever convince somebody that they do not have the right to exist the same way you do. So get, get that narrative out of your head. Appeal to people in a way that they are willing to listen to what you have to say. Again, I'm seeing great improvement from the earlier debates. I still see some signs of it. Maybe it's people who are here for the first time. Um, let's get off topic because I see there's a little veganism uh, conversation. Uh, Yehuda, I see you're still here. I, 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 could, I could keep you in if you want to. I'm listening to you. Okay, fine, fine. I'll hide you. Uh, ping me if you want me to add you in. Okay, veganism. Uh, uh. It is very, very hard to make the moral case that we should be eating the animal products we currently eat today. Okay, there are a few moral cases you can make. One is that you need it to be healthy, but I would say in order to do that, you need to try to be vegan first. Or two, you could just say that you don't give a shit about the suffering of animals. Um, people could come at it from a religious perspective, and that makes it a little bit more complicated because they, they have religious backing, backing them up. And Yehuda, maybe when I'm done, you'll want to chime in here. But just about every argument that people make in order to justify torturing, brutally torturing, and then killing animals is a bad argument. So we, we did it in the past. Well, that's just an, an appeal to nature fallacy. We also used to kill, murder, we used to murder, rape, and steal. Doesn't mean it's okay. We evolve as a species. We get better. Morality, the concept of morality, we, we build and evolve in order to make society better. So again, we used to have slaves. We understood that slavery is wrong. Today, we currently have a form of slavery. We have billions and billions of animals that are currently being exploited for their products. Why? Because they taste good. Because for pleasure. We create unimaginable suffering to other beings because we like the way it feels in our mouth. Now again, maybe some people need a little bit of meat to be healthy. Perhaps. Maybe there's some religious connection. Perhaps. But most of the, the, the animal products we're eating are not for health. There's so all this junk food that the, the fact that they put eggs and dairy and cakes and baked goods. Why does that need to be there? Does that make you healthy? Is mayo a health food? So uh, again, can so, someone, whoever's saying that, I saw somebody say veganism is evil. It's actually not. To, to, to not see the merits in veganism itself is to, in my opinion, be truly closed-minded. And it is a form of co cognitive dissonance because if anybody here were to see somebody abusing an animal, they'd be severely upset, but then they would go and spend money on somebody else to abuse an animal for them. So that's just my two cents on veganism. And I'm not even vegan. I was vegan for a while. Uh, I wasn't such a healthy vegan. So now I occasionally eat, eat meat, but I make the maximum effort to reduce uh, the animal products I eat. And sometimes I indulge and that would be me acting hypocritical and, and I acknowledge it. But let's, but let's, let's not, let's not fool ourselves. There's very little moral cases to make to, uh, to consume animal products at the way we currently do it. 
you, I could add. Yeah, you you want to you want to join in? Sure. Um, I mean, I'm I'm not a vegan. Um, in my family, in my home, we don't really eat uh, cows or chickens, and we don't want to support any of these industries. We do uh, we do eat a lot of saltwater fish, and um, occasionally we have some lamb. But when we do have lamb, we generally get it from a shepherd we know, and uh, we watch it be killed. And uh, I think that there is, at the very least, if somebody is going to eat an animal, they should uh, have the sensitivity to actually watch it die and not just uh, pick it off the shelf of a supermarket and pretend it's, uh, you know, uh, Q-tips or uh, toothpaste or, uh, you know, or even like a, a bottle of water. Like it can't just be a commodity. It can't just be like something you pick off a shelf and uh, pay for. And, you know, you have to sensitize yourself to the fact that a, a creature has died so that uh, I can eat. Uh, so I, I think, it's, you know, I, I think it's an important conversation that, that's taking place. And that's where we're at right now in my house. You know, so that's, that's awesome. yeah. I, I have and, seen uh, in recent years um, a movement that seemed to be started by Haraf Kook, right? Because he, he kind of said that one day, you know, my, my, I'm not coming from a religious perspective. I'm, I'm quite agnostic. Um, but there is there is a growing movement amongst religious Jews to go vegetarian or vegan, and it comes from. Do, do you know the the roots to that? Rav Kook's. Do you know a little bit more about that? Uh, Rav Kook himself, um, I think, ate meat on Shabbat, but uh, it, there's it's not uh, coercive meaning. It's not there's no like social pressure within the world of Rav Kook to become a vegan or a vegetarian. But there are people who who are of that mindset. You know who who subscribe to that philosophy, and have also accepted you know veganism, but it's definitely not uh, it's not something that I think anybody attending a a yeshiva of uh, you know run by the students of Rav Kook feels that they have to you know adopt in order to be you know part of the community or anything of that nature. Right, it's perfect for the students of Rav Kook to be eating meat as well. Awesome. I love how this has uh, turned into the the great vegan debate. <laughs> At this point, I really do um, have to run, but uh, no thanks thank for you for me. I hope we can do this again sometime. And anybody who wants to connect, you know, catch me at visionmag.org, and uh, we'll continue the conversation. For sure, Yehuda. You know, it reminds me of when a band plays and they, you know, everyone's asking for one last song, one last song. So you came on for one final thought. So I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much. Talk soon, Yehuda. My pleasure. Ah, okay. So, I mean, any any questions on veganism? We could we could stay on this topic. I, I I'm down to do another ten minutes with you guys, have a chat about different things. Um, I saw Rafi. You said you'd love to come on. Uh, PM me. Let, let, let's set it up. Um, I'm definitely open on to, to bringing guests. Guys, you know, since I have you here, what what other topics of discussion would you like to see debated? Um, Israel Palestine. I realize that's what brought you here, but you must have some other interests that you'd like to see. Debated. Does the issue of uh, racial justice, or you guys care about that? Maybe the topic of liberty versus security. How do we remain free in the 21st century? How do we re remain both free and safe in the 21st century? What about capitalism versus socialism? 
Um, ben Benjamin, thanks for this comment. Uh, Adara, if you're familiar with it, Kosher explains that slaughtering laws for people who don't know and how it is based on making the animal not feel any pain. So it's true that Kashrut had in mind our well-being and the animal's well-being. For its historical context, Kashrut made a lot of sense. But today it makes less sense. So it's not that the animal doesn't feel any pain, it tries to minimize its pain. Today, many non-kosher meat, they, they shoot the cow in the head. If we were to discover that shooting the cow in the head is more painless than cutting its neck, by kashrut you'd still need to cut its leg, its neck, doing actually killing it in a more painful way. I don't think we know what's more painful, but you could see there that, you know, given advances in technology and our understanding, what made sense in laws of kashrut once wouldn't make sense today. In, in addition to that, uh, there's no laws, you know, kashrut is like what animals you could kill, how you kill it, how you eat it. What about keeping a chicken in a tiny cage this big where it will never see the light of day and never be able to spread its wings? That's obviously wrong. Even according to uh, Jewish law that, you know, is, is against animal cruelty, but it, laws of kashrut don't necessarily say a chicken can't be crammed in a tiny cage. So kashrut is missing a whole bunch of, you know, other aspects of these industries. When a, when a mother, how does the mother cow get pregnant? A doctor puts, literally puts his fist in the cow. You know, technically, I guess that's kosher. It's obviously not okay. When the, when the calf is born, it's taken away from the mother. The mother cries for days. That's obviously immoral, right? So kashrut doesn't cover these things. And in addition to that, the meat today isn't, most kosher meat today is not even kosher. Kosher law says you need to sharpen the blade after every cut. They slaughter hundreds of thousands of chickens every single day. They don't sharpen it between every cut. They cut, cut, cut. It's not kosher. So uh, there might be some type forms of kosher that are generally kosher, but but your average kosher meat, it's it's a it's a scam. It's it's just an industry. Cool. Now I'm um, going to look at comments. Capitalism for socialism sounds good. The debate of Jews, Palestinians, and their relationship to Black Lives Matter. That's very interesting. How do we put an end to anti-Semitism once and for all? I like that one. Oh, this is a question for now, or is this a debate? How do we convince Americans that socialism is not evil after Cold War propaganda? So, Kate, your question about anti-Semitism I don't know if we could put in, you know, I, I think we just need to create a world with more abundance. So often bad ideologies like hate are a result of people struggling. And now th this isn't always the case, right? You could have somebody who has all their basic needs met and they're still hateful. But they, they're probably missing something else in life, maybe meaning, maybe something to live for. So it it seems like the more we could get humans out of the mindset of scarcity and into a mindset of abundance, and this is really by A, providing basic needs, it's shelter, it's security, it's food, water, uh, medical care, but also, and this is innate in humans, you cannot have too big of a disparity between the rich and the poor. Psychologically, we have this uh, innate trait called mimetic desire. We want what our neighbors have. So. Telling somebody to look, you know, you often hear somebody say, 
oh, you should be happy with what you have because compared to people in Africa, you have a lot. But that's not how the human psyche works. We look at what our neighbors have. We don't look at what people in Africa have. So in order for, for humans to be truly happy, we need, we cannot have too big disparity between the rich and the poor. I think once we get to a situation where we have um, a mindset of abundance, I think we will see much less anti-Semitism. I don't, I don't, maybe that's not the full solution, but I certainly think it's a new one. It's, it's a big part of the solution. Regarding your question about socialism, I think we, the, our education systems have failed us in not giving us a good enough understanding of how to interpret um, political philosophy. Not to mention that we are innately very categorical minded, right? We put things in categories. It's our way of simplifying the world. So we were taught from a young age, capitalism good, socialism bad. Some people, they have the reverse mindset. Socialism good, capitalism bad. Now, you see how inaccurate people are with describing political philosophies when they would describe something like Bernie Sanders as a communist, or when they would describe Bernie Sanders' policies as what Venezuela is like. I mean, it's so vastly different. It's it's not even a logical comparison to make. You you can you can argue that you don't like Bernie Sanders as a leader. You don't like his policies. That's legitimate. But to say that what he's doing is like Venezuela just shows a lack of understanding of of you know lack of hum, lack of understanding of our political philosophies and political systems. So I, I would say maybe we evolve past the term socialism. Um, and maybe past the term uh, capitalism because they, they have so much negative connotation. Maybe we evolve it to something new. I like the term social democracy. Social democracy, in a sense, is capitalist. You know, anybody can open, open a business. Uh, it, it incentivizes people to be innovative. But at the same time, uh, the, the citizens have a large enough social safety net to deal with the needs of the weakest members in society. And the best examples of social democracies or Scandinavian countries, right? So a fair comparison to what, let's say, Bernie Sanders wants to do and many other progressives would be uh, Scandinavia, not Venezuela, not Venezuela, um, not, not Soviet, you know, USSR. So maybe let's use terminologies that don't trigger people that can, that can describe, you know, just, just a new paradigm of political philosophy. Questions, questions. You know, I was thinking I wanted to include some music in, in the in these discussions, but uh, YouTube will then either take them off or demonetize the videos. So I'm not going to do it. But if anybody here is an independent artist and wants their music to be played on the show, send it to me, and we'll. Uh, I'm, I'm going to start getting independent people's music and, and playing it. Okay. Uh, Matthew. Ner is it still uh welcome you're a little late but uh it's just me now i'm just chatting we're just having a friendly conversation uh some, something also that i would like to mention i opened a patreon for those who don't know it's a way for content creators and artists to earn money um currently i don't do this full-time this is a part-time gig i would like to dedicate more time to content creation and eventually even make it a full-time gig uh, so if anybody would like to support me on Patreon, the way it works, you could donate a dollar a month, $2 a month, 
And, and the way, you know, is to have a large enough group of people support certain artists and content creators that they can make this their entire living. And if I'm able to do that, then I will definitely up the quality, up the amount, you know, I'm just going to take it to a whole new level. And, you know, I'm working on building that out slowly. Uh, now that I think about it, I don't even have a Patreon link in the description. I will put in the description for everyone who's watching this after it went live, and I'm going to put one in the live chat right now. There we go. We got the Patreon. Um, yeah, um, so Matthew's question is, would you ever consider doing discussion on LGBTQ plus issues within the Jewish world? For sure. I think that's an awesome topic. I, in general, I, I, you know, Yehuda, he has a very, um, Jewish oriented outlook. So I would like to have a deeper conversation with him about how we find which aspects of Judaism and Jewish culture we keep and which part we, we change. And he was very, he's very open to that. Uh, but something like, you know, LGBTQ is, you know, it is obviously an important issue. It's, it's something that for most of history, most religions were not accepting of these people. Um, and I would actually say up until now, you know, we, Israel has done a, a relatively good job with, with LGBTQ rights. Uh, we have multiple pride parades a year. What I will say, though, is it's nowhere near it, where it needs to be because the Rabbanut, uh, which is the the rabbinate. Um, it, it, for, for those who are unfamiliar with the structure of Israel, I mean, it, Israel, in a sense, is a secular democracy, but it does have some elements of theocracy. There are some uh, theocratic elements. Uh, for example, buses don't run on Shabbat, but but the the, the Rabbanut is the the body that oversees the Jewish Jewishness of law. So, for example. If you want to get married, you need to do it through the rabbinate. If you want to get divorced, you need to do it through the rabbinate. If a woman wants to have an abortion, she needs to get permission from the rabbinate to do so. I'd love to see this change. I would. Religion has no place in politics, in my opinion. None. If there's values we extract from religion to place it in in politics, fine. But it should not. It they should not be intertwined. They should be completely separated. So the rabbinate also is not it li somewhat limits what um, what the LGBTQ community can do. Uh, for example, I, there is, uh, and I might be mistaken, but but gay marriage is still not allowed. Uh, they, gay, gay and lesbian Israelis need to leave Israel in order to get married, and they do not let. Um, same-sex couples adopt children as well. So there's obviously progress that, that needs to be made. Um, and yeah, I'd, I'd love to talk about this. Any last questions before we wrap up? Guys, if, if you haven't subscribed to my page yet, please do. Uh, I'm going live twice a week. I'm doing some other videos, running a podcast. And, you know, the, the content I do is really only as good as the guests that I have. It's only as good as the ideas that are implemented and it it's only as good as the audience that shows up. So, hey, I just want to tell you all how much I appreciate you uh, being here. But also, you know, I, I see you as part of this. 
I, I listen to your feedback. I listen to your opinions. Uh, if, if you think there's something I can do better, let me know. If you'd like to see a topic discussed, if you'd like to see someone brought on an interview, let me know. I'm open to all this stuff and it, it will only make this channel better. And really the goal of this channel is to build, I'd love to build a massive platform that can reach millions and millions of people where we could spread ideas of positivity, where we could elevate humans and we, and we could show people that despite our differences, despite our differences, we can still come on and have a respectful dialogue. And you know what? I'm going to go on a little, little rant about cancel culture. Ah, oh, cancel culture. So I consider myself a social justice activist, okay? But there is, there seems to be a growing orthodoxy in the social justice movement. And it's so vastly different from how I see the world uh, in many ways. And I, I'm not going to get deep into it. I will dedicate some full live sessions to this. But the concept of cancel culture, because what we're doing is, is the opposite of cancel culture. I bring, I bring on people to this conversation. Some of them have politically incorrect views. Uh, I, I, I don't censor discussion whatsoever. The only people I wouldn't bring on who, I, who are people who I think are just intentionally hateful and insightful or people that I don't think can have a reasonable conversation. But what, what we're seeing is kind of this, this mob, this mob mentality growing and it's primarily in America. And you know, the, the way they try to justify canceling people, they say, we are just holding racists, racists accountable. And there is some importance to that, right? If somebody is using their platform to spread hate, they should be condemned a movement can be started to deplatform them. I accept that premise, that makes sense. We don't want people in positions of power spreading hate and in potentially inciting violence. So I think, you know, condemning and calling out people who are, who are spewing truly vile beliefs, we can cancel them. They still have the right to free speech as long as they're not uh, in, in uh, uh, label, la what's it called? Label, 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 and uh, incite, inciting are the two are the two things that are not protecting free speech. So that should obviously remain. But what cancel culture has become, it's it's turned into this witch hunt of sorts with a, a witch hunt of moral purity of sorts, right? It's it's not if you're racist, it's if you disagree with how I view the world. It's if you don't agree with how I want to solve racism, you are the enemy and we will come after you and, and attack you. And and people are trying to minimize that this is happening. Let me give you an example. Are you guys familiar with this being a, a white supremacist symbol? It's the okay symbol, but it's in recent years become a white supremacist symbol. Uh, I, I've heard that this became a white supremacist symbol as a joke actually they, they did it as a joke and, and it actually caught on but there was a mexican-american uh gardener and he had this he was holding this symbol out of his window right he was just cracking his knuckles he claimed someone took a picture of him he was fired is this the kind of society we want to build is this how we is this how we tackle racism by which witch hunts against people like this and another example of a very famous story is uh professor brett weinstein whoever doesn't know brett Einstein, he's a great thinker, 
Uh, I, I love his perspective. Uh, he was a university pr uh, professor and the social justice activists on his campus said that there will be a day where no white people show up to campus. It's a no white person day. And he refused. He said, I've been fighting racism my whole life, but this is not the way to do it. I refuse to fight racism with something I view as racist. The following day, a mob stormed his classroom, disrupted his class and demanded he resign. It wasn't even safe for him to return to campus. He, he had to resign eventually. Why? Because he, he didn't agree with the method of social justice. So cancel culture is not just about condemning racists and bad people. It's a witch hunt for moral purity and it's dangerous. What it does is it, people see it and they say, if that's what social justice is, I'm not on board. It weakens the social justice movement. It divides people. It's antagonistic. And it completely misses the point that we need to educate people, not shame people. We cannot take an approach where we think shaming people into submission is how we create social justice. It simply is not. If somebody says something that's racially insensitive, it's probably because they thought it was okay to say. Shame does not teach them, education does. Education is key, outreach is key, empathy is key. Cancel culture and the social justice orthodoxy is none of that stuff. So I am a proud social justice activist. I am, but part of my fight as a social activist currently is fighting against this orthodoxy, which I think is tearing up the social justice movement from the inside out. It's creating more division between the races and the genders. It's doing nothing to progress social justice and I'll continue to be to be uh, vocal about this topic because it's very important to me. I'm going to dedicate a lot of the live sessions to this topic. Um, and I think with that, we'll wrap it up. It's already 1030 in Israel. It's been great, guys. A true pleasure. Uh, this Thursday, we have another debate with Rudy Rachman and Jason Damuni. Uh, Rudy's a fan favorite. Jason, it will be his first time. We are speaking on many new issues. I would love to see you all there. Uh, much love, brothers and sisters, all.